You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. It's a, a great pleasure for us to be able to just come before the Lord and to, to worship him today. Um, it's wonderful that the Lord has set aside a day of the week for us to come and to worship him and to be able to uh, relate and fellowship with one another. And this morning we're going to look into the word of God and ask that God would, would speak to our hearts. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. And uh, it's page 638, I believe, on your pew Bible, if you are using a Bible from the pew. Hear God's word this morning. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to worship and to come before you. And Father, we thank you that you have chosen the foolishness of preaching this, your word to draw men and women, boys and girls, to yourself. And we pray this morning as your word goes forth, Father, that you would convict our hearts because we all need convicted. Father, if there's, those are, there are those among us who do not know you, we pray that you would convert them by your spirit. Father, for those of us that just need your encouragement and your comfort and your care, we pray that that would go forth through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The ultimate question before us today is in what are we placing our hope? We come this morning after a week in which we've seen the suicide of two very famous people in our culture. Kate Spade, the designer, 55 years old, took her own life earlier this week. And on Friday evening, I believe it was, Anthony Bourdain, the 61-year-old celebrity chef, took his own life. Their deaths highlight the prominence of suicide in our culture. Suicide is now, we are told, the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. And beyond that, if we go to the age, uh, the age range of 15 to 24, depending upon who you listen to, it is either the first or the second leading cause of death. Suicide is a complicated issue. It's not, we can't as Christians just think it's an easy issue. However, I think that most everyone, Christian and non-Christian alike, would agree that one of the main reasons people commit suicide is they have lost hope. They have lost hope in life. They have lost hope in the ability to go on without 
um, facing incredible, incredible pain, and so they're looking for a way out. We live today in a world of little hope and great boasts. Of little hope and great boasts. And we see around us the political turmoil, turmoil, both domestically and internationally. And quite frankly, if we are honest this morning, our own lives are filled with struggle on a daily basis. Our own sin, our own brokenness, our own, dare I say it, disillusionment with God, with his people, with the world around us. We live in a world with little hope. In order to face life, we must place our hope in something. And I would submit to you this morning that we are all boasting about something. We are all boasting about something. Now, I know your mothers taught you, if they raised you right, that you're not supposed to boast. Show of hands this morning in a Presbyterian church, you can raise your hand. How many of you taught, your mothers told you that you shouldn't boast when you're growing up, okay? So we're taught not to boast. However, we all boast in something. And scripture tells us directly from God that our boast is to be in the Lord. Now all boasting means, and really as we look at this text, is that we are putting our hope in something. We are putting our trust in something or someone. You see, because as human beings made in the image of God, we were made to worship, right? We were made to worship. And so we're going to worship something. The question is, what are we worshiping? In what are we placing our hope? So before we dive into the text this morning, let's go through the context of Jeremiah, who Jeremiah is and the setting in which he is prophesying. Now Jeremiah prophesied during the reigns of the last kings of Judah. And many of you in this congregation are very Bible literate, but just a little bit of a history lesson once again. During the Old Testament, after the time of David and Solomon, these kings came along that began to turn away from God. And there was a king named Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, he rebelled against Judah and basically split the kingdom into two parts. You had the northern kingdom, which was the ten tribes of Israel, and then the southern kingdom, which was the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And this northern kingdom, it was pretty powerful. God put up with it for 210 years before they were finally destroyed by the Assyrians, this very powerful uh, world, this world power at the time, the Assyrians. Jeremiah comes along about a century later, and during his ministry, the powerful Assyrians fall to the powerful Babylonians. Jeremiah's call came in around 626 B.C. Josiah was the king in Judah, and Josiah was the boy king, you might remember, that rediscovered the book of the law. 
Okay, and uh, during that time, he rediscovered the book of the law, and, and uh, they started to read God's word again, and there became somewhat of a revival, but it wasn't a full revival. So who was Jeremiah? Jeremiah was a priest. Jeremiah's nickname was the weeping prophet. He was forbidden to marry, and he lived what was a very lonely and in many ways painful life. You see, because he was called to announce the judgment of God, and he actually lived to see it fulfilled, which is not the case with many, many prophets. And during this time, there was a long struggle in Judah between idol worship on the one hand and the worship of Yahweh on the other. And the idol worship came because God's people, the children of Israel, were influenced by the nations around them and saw all these other gods, and their hearts would start to drift in that direction. Jeremiah's message was one of salvation, but only on the other side of judgment. He prophesied in the, four, right up to the, four, in the 40 year period, right up to the Babylonian exile. It was a politically turbulent time, and Egypt and Babylon were the two world powers that were contending for the region at the time. And it was a time again when God's people were worshiping idols. In fact, during the time of Jeremiah, there were false prophets all around who were prophesying peace and prosperity. In verse 3 of chapter 9, we learn what God thought of these false prophets. The verse says, they, they bend their tongue like a bow, crooked speech. Falsehood and not truth has grown up strong in the land. They proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. I would submit to you, that theirs was a time not unlike our own in many ways. But even if it wasn't exactly like our own, it was like all other ages throughout history in that it was a time of idol worship. Yes, I'm going to say that again. It was like a time of all other ages throughout history when it was a time of idol worship. Because, as Calvin said, our hearts, the human heart, is an idol factory. We are always going after other gods. So three questions from the text this morning that I would like to unpack with you. The first question is what are we not to boast in? What are we not to boast in? The second question, very simple, is what are we to boast in? What are we to boast in? And the third question is why are we to boast in the Lord? Because that's the answer to the second question in case you missed it. Why are we to boast in the Lord? So first of all, what are we to boast in? Verse 23 says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. So first of all, we see we are not to boast in our own wisdom. We live in a world 
and in a society that often boasts in its own wisdom. Many of us, even in this room, are well-educated, and we live in a, in a town with an elite university. So our minds are oftentimes puffed up, and we boast in our wisdom. It's so easy to trust in our own wisdom. However, as Proverbs states, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. You see, worship of the mind as ultimate authority is idolatry. God made us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our minds are not a bad thing. They're a wonderful thing under the submission of God. But if we worship the mind, that is idolatry. In stark contrast, the gospel is a foolish message. The gospel is a foolish message that goes against man's wisdom. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 19 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And he goes on in verse 25 of that same chapter to note, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We are not to boast in our own wisdom. Secondly, we are not to boast in our own might. Another way of saying that is to boast in our own power. Jeremiah lived in an age of military strength. The children of Israel were surrounded by these great military powers, the Babylonians and the Egyptians. He knew firsthand the power of the Babylonians. In fact, they would be exiled by this power. Yet the admonition from the Lord was not to trust in military might. There was a temptation at the time in Israel to align themselves with these military powers and to make a pact with them so that life could be pretty comfortable. And I would dare say that for many Americans and even many American Christians, it is all too easy to trust in the power of American military might. It's all too easy. Many of us, we want, we want a godly society, but why do we want it? Why do I want it a lot of times, if I'm honest? Because I want my life to be nice and comfortable. Because I want to just be able to live a quiet life and enjoy my family. All of those things, good things. But it's really more about me and about my comfort than it is about God and about his glory. We are warned not to trust in our own might, not to worship that. Thirdly, we are warned not to trust in our own riches. God's admonition to the house of Israel was not to boast in or to trust in riches. We live in the richest country on earth. Most of us, if we are middle class, live in a style that's in the top one or two percent of people in the entire world. Do we realize that? We live in a very wealthy, affluent society. Praise God for the blessing of being able to live in that, but it's so easy to begin to trust in that. In my day job at William & Mary, 
Um, I have the privilege of raising funds for William & Mary, and I am around a lot of very wealthy people. And it is all too easy for me to forget, forget that riches are not something to be trusted in. And for my heart to be influenced in worldly ways and to trust in my own riches. Now, wealth is not wrong, but it is oh so easy to trust in it and to begin to find our hope there. Paul's admonition to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, and remember this is in the New Testament where the people were given all their wealth away in the book of Acts. But Paul comes along and he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. He doesn't say tell them to give all their money away. He says, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of of that which is truly life. True life is not found in riches. It comes from a relationship with God. So we must not put our trust in wisdom. We must not put our trust in strength or power. We must not put our trust in riches. So if everyone is trusting in something, what are we, second point, to put our trust in? Verse 24 says, verse 23 again, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That he understands and knows me. We have in this text here, the Hebrew idea of wisdom, which was very opposed to the Greek idea of wisdom. The Greek idea of wisdom was around knowledge. If you know something in your head, you've got it, and that's good. The Hebrew idea was that if you do something, you are wise. In fact, it says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And as we live our lives, Proverbs was clear, it's not the man who just knows something in his head, but the person who does something that shows true wisdom. We are to put our hope, our boast, into understanding and knowing God. This knowing is not merely a head knowledge. It's not merely an intellectual scent. And sometimes I think in reform circles, we really have a struggle with this because we get the mind right. We are all about theology, and the theology is incredibly important because guess what? Everyone's a theologian. Some people will say, well, I'm not into theology. Everybody's a theologian because all theology is is what you believe about God. So even an atheist is a theologian. He's just a bad one, (laughs) but he's a theologian. So the question is not that we do need to have proper understanding, but proper assent alone, mental assent alone is not Enough. You see, God must reveal himself to us. That is why the Bible was written. And this happens through his word. It happens by his spirit. 
And we must put our hope in Christ and be born again. It's not enough just to think through the theological facts. And then after we're born again, we need to continue to grow in grace. The question is, do we know or do we understand God? This is not our natural state. We cannot conjure up this on our own. Once we are reconciled to Christ and are God's kids, then we can know God and we can grow in our understanding of him. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, talk about this. Therefore, Paul spends the first 11 chapters of Romans laying out the glorious gospel of grace. And then he goes into chapter 12 and he says, Therefore, in view of God's mercies, present your your bodies as living sacrifices to God, which is your reasonable form of service. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will know what is the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God. So how do we know God? We know God by his spirit, but then we know him through scripture as our minds are not conformed to the thinking of this world, not squeezed by this world, but are transformed by God's word, and we can know him and we can know his will. So, what, second point again, is what are we to boast in? And the third point, if we are to boast in the Lord, if we are to boast in understanding and knowing him, why are we to boast in the Lord? Why are we to trust in the Lord? But let him who boasts, and that's everyone, boast in this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord that executes steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight declares the Lord. We can boast in the Lord because of God's character. Even from a human standpoint, there are people that we trust. Why do we trust them? We trust them because of their character, because we know them, because they've proven themselves time and again to be faithful. God is the ultimate in faithfulness. And there are three aspects of his character that he speaks here to Jeremiah and to the children of Israel and by extension to us. That I am the Lord that executes or practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Steadfast love is a never-ending love. It's a love that he promises to his children And it's related to his covenant promises. It's merciful. It's vast. It's everlasting. It's the love we see throughout the Psalms. It's the love we see when Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. God practices steadfast love towards his children. Secondly, we can boast in the Lord and his character because he practices justice. Justice is a key part of God's character. Now, admittedly, from our standpoint, as we look at the world, we don't always see it. We don't always understand it. 
there are things that happen that are really, really unjust. And that should hurt us. That should cause us pain. But we can trust that God is going to ultimately bring about absolute justice on this earth. God's justice, if we look at scripture, is revealed in his law. And we see that in the Ten Commandments and in his character throughout scripture where God is a just God. His wrath is part of his justice and it's reserved for those who do not know him. And God's justice and wrath has been poured out in history upon Jesus Christ. You see, God has already practiced justice on the earth by sending Christ to die for our sins. And he will ultimately practice justice when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. The third aspect of God's character that we see here is righteousness. I am the Lord that practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. What does it mean by God practicing righteousness in the earth? Well, certainly for Jeremiah and the children of Israel, these verses were pointing forward. They were pointing forward to a righteousness that was coming. And we, in hindsight, can look back and we can see that that righteousness was accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ. You see, when we are born again, we exchange our unrighteousness for the righteousness of Christ. One of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, he who knew no sin, meaning Jesus, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. That is an incredible, incredible thing. God practices righteousness on earth right now through his people. If we are his people, we are the hands and the feet of Jesus. We can practice righteousness on earth. And as we put our true hope in Christ and his righteousness, we are able to live as his representatives in the world. But righteousness will only come fully in this world when Christ returns. That should be obvious to us from looking around and from even looking inside into our own hearts. 2 Peter 3.13 states, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Another translation puts it, the home of righteousness. Ain't that just a cool sounding thing? Think about that. The home of righteousness. So where are we placing our hope? Our boast, what are we not to boast in? We are not to boast in wisdom, might, and riches. What are we to boast in? We are to boast in knowing and understanding him. Why are we to boast in this? We can do it because of God's character, his steadfast love, his justice, his righteousness. But then we come to the application. How do we do all this? How do we do it? Right now, I could tell you to just, we could pray a prayer. I could tell you if just become a little bit more humble and send you home. 
Or I could say five easy steps to trusting in God. Let's put them down. Let's make the check mark. But we know that we can only do this when we understand the gospel. It all comes back to the gospel. You see, the gospel is the good news that God proclaims. The indicative comes before the imperative. The truth of who we are in Christ is spoken by God before he asks us to go out and live for him. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. You get that? It's not good advice. It's not moralism. It's not just go and be better. It's good news. But the temptation of our hearts is always to build up our own righteousness and just buck up. How many times have you committed that sin and you're going, I'm just going to do better next time instead of taking it to God and confessing it and being freed from that? See, our boast and our hope should be just like the Apostle Paul, who said in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What is the cross? The cross is the gospel. We are to boast in the gospel. You see, because the gospel is the fuel that enables us to put our true hope in Christ. It's the fuel. I'm going to put a little plug in here for a book that my friend Nick Bear gave to me a little over a year ago and that I've been given to just given to a lot of people in my life called a gospel primer. Some of you have used it in, in uh, home group. A um, guy by the name of Vincent, Vincent, Milton Vincent wrote it. And uh, if you're taking notes, you might want to write that book down. It's one of the best little books I've ever seen on the gospel. But we have, I think, often in our culture, a misunderstanding of the gospel. You see, I grew up in a Christian culture that taught me that the gospel was the four spiritual laws. The gospel was the way in. The gospel was praying the prayer so that you become saved. And I'm not trying to downplay that at all. There is a point of faith we need to be born again. However, what that culture taught both explicitly and implicitly was that then it was up to me to live the Christian life. And doggone it, I could not do it. I could not live the Christian life. And it wasn't, and that is a really faulty thinking on the gospel because you see the gospel is the totality of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. It is the theme of scripture that's revealed in creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. C.J. Mahaney says, the gospel isn't one class among many that you will take in your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all of the classes take place in. You get that? It's the house. And Mahaney continues, he said, rightly approached, all the topics you will study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the, within the walls of the glorious gospel. 
So if we're going to talk about prayer, we're going to talk about faith, we're going to talk about evangelism, we're going to talk about uh, living according to God's law, all of these things, those are all rooms in the house. Very important that you go into each room and study it. Do that. Go into the fasting room. It's one I don't go into very often. But, but the gospel is the house. It's the house. In closing, I want to share with you a hymn that I love that tells the story of the gospel in just, I think, a very particular and poignant way. I had the privilege a week and a half ago of uh, being in Chicago, and I traveled. I had a little bit of time, so I went by the Moody Bible Institute and uh, took a look at that. I had, I had been there once before years ago. Um, and this hymn came out of the Moody Bible Institute. There was a great uh, pastor and president of the Moody Bible Institute that followed Dwight Moody by the name of R.A. Torrey. I know many of you, the jesters, are familiar with R.A. Torrey. Many of you are a godly man. R.A. Torrey, when he was president of Moody Bible Institute, got a letter from a man who was a pastor. And this pastor said, I have a son who is very rebellious. And I want to send him to the Moody Bible Institute because I believe if he just comes to the Moody Bible Institute, he will amend his ways. R.A. Torrey wrote back politely and said, we are running a Bible Institute, not a reform school. We do not want your son. The man insisted. He wrote letter after letter to him. Finally, R.A. Torrey wrote back a letter and said, I relent under one condition. And the condition is this. Your son can attend Moody Bible Institute, but every day that he has classes, he has to come into my office and he has to listen to me, he has to meet with me because I'm going to read to him a portion from the Word of God. Pastor signed off on it, he sent his son, his son came to the school. His son was a very rebellious young man. He would go into R.A. Torrey's office and he would complain about all the things that were wrong with the school. And then he would sit and he would listen, or R.A. Torrey would sit quietly and listen and let him have his say. Then he would open up the word of God, he would read to him, and he would say, now you're dismissed. He did this, I'm not sure how long, but it, it must have been at least weeks. One day, that young man, whose name was William R. Newell, became converted. William R. Newell went on to become a great Bible teacher. He became pastor of Bethesda Congregational Church in Chicago, and ultimately he became an assistant superintendent at the Moody Bible Institute. He wrote commentaries on Romans, Hebrews, and Revelations, was a great man of God. Thirty years after his conversion, he was teaching a class at Moody Bible Institute, and between classes, a poem came to him that he wrote down on the back of, the, of an envelope. He handed that poem to a man named Daniel Towner. Daniel Towner was the music director at the Moody Bible Institute. R.A. Torrey went away to teach his class, which was an hour. He came back. Daniel Towner had found an abandoned room at the piano, and he had sat down, and he had put together a little hymn. Some of you may recognize it. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died, 
at Calvary. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. The second verse, listen to it. By God's word, at last my sin I learned, as he sat and listened to the word of God be read to him. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned, till my guilty soul, imploring, turned to Calvary. You see, mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. By, or, or, then the third verse goes, now I've given to Jesus everything. Now, because of the gospel, I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. You see, because mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. And I love the last verse, which just encapsulates the gospel. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Because mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Don't you see the gospel this morning? Don't you see how great it is? Don't you see that this is the way to boast and this is the way to trust? Don't you see that this is the hope for the world and the hope for our souls? Turn this morning to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. We pray that your word would speak to our hearts this day. Father, that we would glimpse the glorious gospel of grace, that you would convert us, that you would convict us, that you would comfort us, that you would bring us ultimate hope so that our boast can truly be in you. Amen.